3CR broadcasts over the stolen land of the Woiwurrung and the Boonwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm Paddy and I'm in the studio with Ella this morning. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, I'm doing good. I just started a new job where I have to be up early, so it's definitely easier to get up this morning. Really good. <laughs> so you're you're getting used to the um, seeing, not seeing the sun? Yeah, slowly but surely. It was um, a bit of a shock to the system after a year in lockdown last year when we started again at the beginning of the year. But yeah, slowly working my way back into it. <laughs> I'm switching to... Um, uh, days next week, so I'm I'm usually an evening shift guy, so it'll be good to have all my days starting at the same time. Yeah, it does help. <laughs> and you're feeling better after last week. We both um, ended up being off sick last Wednesday. So it was- <laughs> yeah, I think I think everybody at the moment has that weakened immune system. Everyone I know is getting sick. Um, I've still got a bit of a sort of a congestion, but um, I'm sure I'm no longer contagious. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. We do have Perspex class separating us so <laughs> just as well. And um, it's it's getting to that time of year. It's like vaccine season. I've got to get a vaccine for work. Have you? Have you? No, not yet. So yeah, I am eligible. Um, so I do disability support work. Um, so it's one of the first eligible. But I kind of at first I because I just work privately and I kept hearing how no one could get it. I thought, oh, I don't want to push in front of frontline workers or. Um, yeah, people working in hospitals or quarantine. Um, but yeah, I think I will uh, chase it up, try and get a vaccine. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be fun. It'll be uh, something to brag about. You know, <laughs> <to my friends. laughs> One of the select few who yeah, exactly. to get their hands on it. <laughs> exactly. And then if there is a you know another outbreak or anything, you can be like, hey, I've got nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, there, yeah, hopefully they can... Um, sort out all their issues going on at the moment. I think there's already um, struggling to get confidence in vaccines. And I think, um, yeah, with reports of blood clots and mm. vaccine shortages, I think it's going to be a real task actually getting people to get out there and get the vaccine once they've got enough doses. Mm. I think I saw in the last week as well, Scott Morrison said that they've sort of abandoned that plan of having everyone vaccinated by the end of the year. I think it's been impossible. Yes, yeah, I saw that. I think um, everyone saw that coming. We yeah. weren't quite hitting the targets, and I think they finally conceded. <laughs> well, it's a monumental effort because effort, I, I don't even know um, with the flu vaccine, but it's it's nowhere near a hundred percent get that every year because it's no such an effort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but. We have a action-packed show this week. Uh, at the end of the show, we're actually speaking to Sam Cerner. I guess the comedy festival is almost wrapping up, but we've got one more comedian to come on and tell us about their show, and it's actually their debut solo show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So it'll be great to speak to Sam about um, about her show and about how how she developed it. Yeah, yeah, it's been nice um, getting to finish the show with a comedian every week, ending on a lighter note. I've been enjoying it. <laughs> Especially with some of the, the heavier topics that we cover. Um, for instance, 
just to start off the show, we're going to hear an interview from the excellent Idwin with Frontline Action on Call about the links between Adani and Myanmar. The Australian Centre for International Justice revealed Adani had paid over $50 million to the military-aligned Myanmar Economic Corporation to lease land for its Yangon International Terminal. It also revealed that though Adani last month denied having dealings with the Myanmar military, there is video footage of Chief Executive Karen Adani meeting and exchanging gifts with Top General and accused war criminal Min Ong Hang. Uh, Frontline Action on Call discusses Adani's history in prioritising profits over people. It'll be good to hear that. Yeah, and, um, um, yeah, that's not enough in the news. I think about what's happening in Myanmar. It's yeah, yeah, really definitely, awful and doesn't get quite the same coverage as it should. It would be great if we could um, speak to someone on the ground over there. Some of the it sounds like there's a lot of a revolt and popular protest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's something I'm keen to look into more, so watch this space. <laughs> and who are you speaking to today? And I'm very excited to have our first live guest of 2021 on Wednesday Breakfast in. Um, so I'm going to be speaking to Dean Lim from 3CR's Behind Closed Doors. Uh, so Behind Closed Doors is Australia's only sex work show. Um, and I'm going to be asking Dean about the online safety bill and the impact it's likely to have on sex workers. Um, so this is a bill about trying to make... Um, the internet safer. Originally, it was um, there to keep children safe. It's now for all adults as well. Um, but there's a f- quite a few concerns from yes, yeah, sex workers and free speech advocates. Um, there's a lot of power given to one woman, the e-safety commissioner, um, and some pretty vague legislation, which uh, yeah, I think has a lot of people concerned. So it'll be good to hear what Dean says about that. Um, he's also going to tell me about an upcoming performance from Behind Closed Doors. Um, they're going to be performing at the Midsummer Festival, so we'll hear what they've got planned. Oh, awesome. That sounds that sounds really interesting. Well, action-packed show. Let's start off with Better Things by Kian. Thank you. 
when I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. This is Eidman. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Today, we are talking to Andy from Frontline Action on Coal. FLAC is a collective of activists working across the country to stop mining of non-renewable, sorry, the mining of non-renewables and push back against environmental destruction. Andy, at the start of the month, FLAC staged a picket outside the office of Adani's Abbott Point coal terminal, protesting the mining conglomerate's funding of the Myanmar military regime. Could you catch us up on how FLAC has got involved in this issue? Yes, well, we have been up here focusing on Adani for a few years now, since 2017. Obviously, Adani trying to the Carmichael coal mine, very controversial coal mine in central Queensland. And so we are very familiar with Adani's workings as a company and what they're doing up here and the Abbott Point port. Um, and so when we heard news as well, a report coming out saying that um, Adani is very involved with the military uh, regime in Myanmar that overthrew their democratically elected government at the start of this year. We thought that um, it's another opportunity, you know, to put pressure on Adani, not just because we're hoping to stop their mind, but out of solidarity with people of Myanmar um, and people in India as well who are struggling against Adani and their human rights abuses and just uh, to try to build a a united front um, across the globe of all people that are affected by Adani, this company, for all kinds of reasons. Now, the report was released by the Australian Centre for International Justice. Could I get you to discuss the main findings from the report linking Adani with the Myanmar Economic Corporation and the Yangon International Terminal? What's the significance of this or the impact Adani has within this? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, Adani's main business is not running uh, coal mines around Southeast Asia. It's mostly in ports, shipping terminals, like the one they have here at Abbott Point near Bowen in Queensland. And another one that they have is in Myanmar at Yangon. And for the land having this port, for the contract, they pay $50 million to the Myanmar Economic Corporation which is sort of a front company for the military. You know, ever since Myanmar's had a democratic elected government over the last uh, bit less than a decade, the military still has a very prominent life in Myanmar's politics. And um, a lot of this is funded by this Myanmar Economic Corporation. And so this report by um, Solidarity Justice International, um, it revealed that Adani had paid $50 million US dollars to the Myanmar Economic Corporation for the 
the land there at that port and the contract to do the shipping. And when we see what the military has been up to, not just in overthrowing a government, but then in repeatedly using violence against peaceful protesters, we see where that money is going, Adani's money. And in relation, I suppose, to, you know, Adani's relationship with it, they've been very cagey and said, you know, um, we're not involved in the politics in the region, you know, it's business as usual, and and kind of tried to hide this from stakeholders as much as possible. What are the effects of this association? Well, I think, uh, I don't know how close Adani is linked with the um, Myanmar militaries. They had said that they'd had nothing to do with the military. They just paid this money to this corporation. And then there was a video revealed of Karan Adani, who is the CEO of Adani Ports, the, that division of the Adani company, of him meeting with a Myanmar general and who's an accused war criminal, um, a meeting exchanging gifts in this kind of corporate ceremony. And so... Um, as Adani has been caught out before in Australia with their mine, once again, they were just caught out blatantly lying here um, mm. to say that they had no knowledge of involvement. Uh, we know from India, Adani, the company, is extremely intertwined with the BJP. They're the um, current government of India. They're the main donor, um, the Gautam Adani and Narendra Modi have a long personal relationship going back decades. And in India, the idea of Adani corruption with government is just completely commonplace. And so we've seen that there. And so it wouldn't be any surprise at all to see Adani linking up with the Myanmar military if that helped them and their business interests. Mm-hmm. And this kind of pulls me onto a big theme that came out of the report and has been a consistent uh, criticism of Adani since it began operations in Australia, at least, and before that, really, is this idea of Adani's PR and its portrayal as kind of a very, you know, um, ethical company. I- I've got a quote here from you saying, you know, it paints itself as a good corporate citizen, but it's a company that puts its profits ahead of all other considerations. Could I get you to expand on that and just this sort of you know, one hand doing one thing, the other hand doing the other, you know, that that culture. As we've seen in Australia, ever since Adani first came here, Adani's PR machine has been um, a very active and uh, they're a company very focused on public image. When they first came to Australia, there was all this media reports about providing 10,000 jobs mm. that came out later um, in court when they were challenged on that under oath, they said, well, actually, it's more like 1,400 jobs, which is a lot less mm. than 10,000. Um, we've seen other things like that in Australia. They, um, you know, because there was just a lot of talk about the environmental damage of the Carmichael mine, Adani also um, applied to have a huge uh, photovoltaic solar farm, a renewable energy farm in South Australia, saying, you know, we don't just do coal, we also do solar energy. That solar farm has never been built. Um, It was just a PR exercise and we've seen things like this again and again Um, to the point where up here it's getting ludicrous with Adani rebranding with um, in the last year we've seen the Abbott Point Port, which of course is part of, owned by Adani has been, you know, caught out environmental breaches and things Mm -hmm. like that. 
it's been renamed to the North Queensland Export Terminal. So Adani's rail company that they've made, given this totally nondescript Bowen Rail Company name, and then Adani's mining division actually changed its name to Bravis as this way of sort of dodging the, the bad publicity that has followed this company around. And all the while, they're continuing to say how they're providing jobs that, you know, they're, uh, they've been criticised. Their mine is going to knock out a large amount of the endangered black-throated finch habitat. And on their Facebook, they post these things about how they've got a, they're funding a black-throated finch program to track mm-hmm. these birds while they knock down their habitat. And so um, this is what part of the, you know, the battleground of protecting our environment is about. It's about constantly taking on these PR um, spin from these companies who have the access to media to always say that what they're doing is good. And we continually have to be revealing the truth, um, which is the same in the environment movement and the same when it comes to talking about human rights, where people are just saying basic things like democracy is good, being able to protest about being shot is good. They have mm. to fight the kind of spin of companies that on one hand prop up a military dictatorship and on the other hand talk about all the benefits that they provide. Thank you so much, Andy, for getting, you know, coming on and talking to us a little bit about flak and Adani's support at the moment with uh, the military regime over in Myanmar. Before you go, is there any way that our listeners can get involved more with flak and specifically following you on this issue and all the other fronts that you're fighting on? Yeah, for sure. Um, we have a website, frontlineaction.org, um, and we're also on Facebook. There's Frontline Action on Coal. Um, and so we'll, you know, Myanmar's not our main focus. It's in our name that we try to do to stop coal mining, but we're certainly wanting to support people in Myanmar. And another group that we are trying to support is the Wanganjagalingu people, Aboriginal people on the site of Adani's Carmichael Mine who have been resisting it and we're uh, supporting them to organise events. So they've got a big event coming up, a, a cycle ride onto their country coming up next month. And so if people are interested in that, uh, that's definitely worth checking out. That's called the Tour de Carmichael. And we'd love to see uh, more people involved both up here and uh, down in Melbourne fighting for all the environmental causes down there as well. Thank you, Andy. And if you want to follow more on Adani, you can head online to www.theadanifiles.com.au where a bunch of activists in Australia have chronicled or collected all of the sort of past and present um, scandals that Adani is involved in and backed it up and researched it for to, to provide kind of a resource, I suppose. You can also have a look at the report we referenced in this interview by heading onto the Australian Centre for International Justice website. Uh, Again, they document in much greater detail the relationship Adani currently has with associations tied to uh, the military regime in in Myanmar. Finally, music has been a massive part of the people's protest in Myanmar. So I'm going to head out this interview with a song that came out only days after the military coup in February. This one is called Endgame, and it's by Nay Yi Kant, Adjuster, Young Hugo, Gracie, Division, Young Ye, and Ellie. Niño che, la sentangere tai puede, maru chicho ta kaungi yama wele ni, mia 
open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Under the leeward side Cause I wanna be someone 
worthy of your conversation The madness in the moonless night So shake off your leeward side As I lean the edge back to you And some will sit on their hands despite their feet One day you know I'll see You dancing away from me Cause I wanna be someone Worthy of your conversation Your madness in the moonless night So shake off your leeward side We all wanna be someone In the miniature of your life in the wounded sky So shake off your salvation have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And before that, we heard Leeward's side from Josh Pike. Now I want to talk about the online safety bill. So on the face of it, this bill is about improving online safety uh, by targeting online abuse and harassment. So things like social media trolling, online bullying, or revenge porn. Uh, But the bill has received a lot of criticism, in particular from sex workers and free speech advocates. And it's the impact on sex workers and porn performers that I'm particularly interested in looking at today. So I'm joined live in the studio with Dean Lim from 3CR's Behind Closed Doors, Australia's only sex work radio show. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Dean. Good morning, everyone. 
<laughs> but where's my coffee? <laughs> I'm already up to number two. So. <laughs> I'll be right behind you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're used to being on at 6pm on a Thursday, right? So a bit different on a Wednesday morning. We yes. do appreciate it. <laughs> That's okay. I'm a morning person anyway. Glad to hear it. <laughs> um, so tell us a little about Behind Closed Doors, Dean, before we get into the safety bill. Well, Behind Closed Doors is uh, a show on 3CR. We're on every Thursday, 6pm. My fellow co-host, Sasha and Kitty, are also sex workers. We talk about the sex industry. We talk about being sex workers. We also talk about politics uh, and especially about decriminalisation that's been happening over the last 12 months with Fiona Patton leading a sex work review. So we've had Fiona Patton on talking about that as well. We really want to shed a light on sex, being sex positive, and that it happens to everyone so why have all this stigma? Why have all this discrimination? Why be fearful of sex? Yeah. Um, that's why we're on at 6 p.m., not 7 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slightly yeah. uh, mature um, listening audience, <laughs> so to say, shall we say. <laughs> um, yeah, in case it wasn't already obvious, a heads up to listeners, we will be talking about sex. Yes, S-E-X. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you really end up looking at a wide range of topics on Behind Closed Doors. There's a lot to cover. So there's always something in. to cover. That's that's yeah. why I can't believe it. We've we're uh, two years old. We're still going, and there's so much more which we'll talk about later. Yeah, and yeah, you just uh, recently celebrated your two year anniversary. Two years. Right? I, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're um we've got a camera in the studio with us today. Um, you're shooting a documentary. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So. Part of the uh, big picture plan for Behind Closed Doors is we've got a, a, a documentary team following us, asking asking us uh, and documenting what it is like to be a sex worker in Australia, especially of Asian descent, uh, also looking at representation and talking about SEX. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing it come out. Yeah, Patty and I are used to just um, having to have our voices ready, so um, it's a bit of a change having to do our hair this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're both looking very sharp. Love it. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, the reason I was really keen to talk to you is about this online safety bill. Um, so this bill, yeah, it covers a lot. Um, my understanding is there are two parts in particular which have sex workers and porn performers concerned. Um, can I get you to start by telling us how the bill's going to change existing legislation in the area and, um, yeah, why we should be concerned? Okay, where do I begin? All right, <laughs> so the reason why personally I'm so um, passionate about this is that when I first uh, saw it a few months ago, it raised alarm bells for me. So it reminded me very much of the Foster-Sester bill that the US government introduced a couple of years ago. Their bill looked at online, online content, uh, pornography, child safety, um, sex trafficking. So on the surface, it was this terrific package that was presented uh, that looked at um, protecting the community having some standards uh, regarding online behaviour. Terrific. On the surface, we all support that because we don't want um, people who are underage, we don't want uh, sex trafficking, we don't want people to be targeted in that way. We, Of course, that, that's you know, pretty sensible and it's a, a, a great uh, thing to do. The Australian government has also copied that kind of model and it's presenting this as we are looking at 
pornography. We're looking at the dangers of the internet. And as you mentioned before, we don't want any of this. You know, it, it's it's common sense approach. Terrific. We already have things in place to cover that. If you dig it a little bit deeper, it actually looks at freedom of speech and it looks at, well, what is suitable content? And the problem that we have found is that suitable content also targets things that could be classified as fetish. So on Behind Closed Doors, we actually talked about this and we had a few people talk about um, some experts raise the issues, which is things like using candle wax. That's seen as fetish, which is insane. <laughs> insane. And this is also targeting um, activities that occur between consenting adults. Yeah, so a lot of the um, criticism in terms of its similarities with foster sister is they don't seem to be able to distinguish between consenting adult behaviour and uh, violent or abusive behaviour, which was a real issue. <laughs> it's it's coming from um, a very similar, uh, I feel, morality, and um, but it could be generational, it could be cultural, but a sense of we as the government, the federal government in Australia, know what's right for you. So children, sit down, we will take charge of things. And it's like, hang on, we're not children, we're adults. We are consenting adults. We know what we want, we know what we like. We can have a an adult conversation about this. So the eSafety Commissioner actually had a review recently about all of this and um, our show put in a submission as well as a few other uh, sex worker-led uh, organisations and groups as well as people from the general community the findings were that, you know, yes, we were concerned and the uh, bit about the bill, which is called Part 9, was the main thing that we wanted to um, uh, have taken out of this overall bill. They didn't listen to us. So the e-safety commissioner, her findings was, nothing to see here, folks. It's all good. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Well, it's not going to be okay. The federal government is going to steamroll this through they're fast-tracking this as, as quickly as possible without any consultation, without any review, and without any checks and balances. That's another thing that I'm really upset about. You have one person, the eSafety Commissioner, with all this power, regardless of what side of politics or morality or religion or culture they come from, where are their checks and balances? Who do they refer to in, in the broader community um, with a more bipartisan um, approach to this. Yeah. There, is, there is nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And I see her response has just been that, oh, well, sex work isn't my concern. I won't focus on that. But yeah, I'm not going to target. Exactly. I'm not going to target sex work. Don't worry about it. But I'm, we're not worried about the sex work. We're, talk, we're worried about everything because, yeah. um, you know, it's easy for me to be selfish and say, oh, sex workers, you know, we deserve this, this and this and blah, blah, blah. But I'm looking at, at a general approach of Everyone in society is going to be affected, just like Foster Sesta. And that's why I keep um, banging on about Foster Sesta, because that was the perfect um, situation to show. You know, on the surface, you think it's great for the society. Reality, it's been horrific, absolutely horrific. Yes, sex workers were uh, the main people targeted and affected. And yes, people who um, come from minorities, people who... Uh, are really disenfranchised in society, absolutely. But look at the bigger picture. Look at the overreach of the government, of a government, and the powers that they give themselves and what they can do. So yeah. it's really hard once, you know, 
the, the genies let out of the box, how to put all that back in, we can't. So that's why you know, I've been trying to um, make people aware that this is happening, that there is not, not really much we can do now because the government is really fast-tracking this. Yeah, I was going to say, so yeah, they introduced this draft legislation on the 23rd of December, a time which is, yeah, notoriously quiet and people aren't um, paying attention to the news. Um, I think they received almost 400 submissions, but um, only took about 10 days to review them. So as you said, they haven't really taken them into account. And I'm not surprised. How can you get through all that in 10 days? (laughs) Unless you're a speed reader. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's, a that's, team of speed readers I know, that's, you know, trained monkeys and speed reading trained monkeys that's insane so the senate met neat, the senate meets next on the 11th of may which is very soon and so there's actually a, a really good chance that it's going to pass the bill yeah you know. and it has bipartisan support at the moment <laughs> Where to begin? I mean, yeah. Labor. I don't. Uh, I don't know. I've given up hope on Labor, but that's another episode (laughs) (laughs) to talk about and um, another concern of the bill is a lot of the sort of vague wording around it and the impact that's likely to have on um, social media platforms or various websites who we already know um, are are very risk adverse and very likely to um, de-platform sex workers or other adult performers um, and they seem to have left it intentionally vague Um, so I think the fear is a lot of these sites instead of having to jump through all the hoops and um, figure out the grey areas are just going to ban sexual content or sex workers from advertising. That's right. Exactly what happened in the States. So uh, the US government targeted certain uh, websites. So one of them was Backpage. And because they were seen as an example or made an an example of, other websites uh, closed their business. And so that is uh, our feeling of what will happen or can happen in Australia where websites will say, well, we are risk adverse. We don't want to either be fined or shut down or have any problems with the Australian government. What can we do? Well, as you just mentioned, we will just ban certain content from being uh, on on our platforms, which is insane because during COVID – Everyone made money through online platforms. Celebrities, not just sex workers, got onto things like OnlyFans and made millions and millions of dollars, which is ridiculous how things have now changed uh, so that everything now is really online. The, the problem with that is that if you have a, have a society where you, can, you can't do anything or you are going to be penalised for doing something, between consenting adults, what happens? You create a black market. Yeah. So what happens? All this, all this talk of oh well, you know, we want to protect the children, we want to, we want to protect society. Well, that's that's fine and dandy, but what happens in the dark web? We you don't know. You can't monitor it. Yeah, we know from Foster Sesta that this kind of legislation, which is supposed to protect people, actually ends up being counterproductive. It was horrific. And the stories we've heard from overseas with sex workers, I'll I'll speak primarily from sex workers' point of view, but from sex workers going back to, say, pimps, you know, uh, doing more street work, things that are much more inherently dangerous because the sex worker who cannot control their environment anymore, they're relying on someone else, they're giving power to someone else. And that's just not what we want. What we want. We are adults. We are consenting adults. We are small business operators. Let us work. Yeah. 
And even for this um, more specific issue of online abuse, it ends up being counterproductive because surely people who are most at risk of online abuse are going to be sex workers who are posting online content. or Exactly. Online and you're posting online content using your work name. You may be hesitant to go to authorities with your legal name uh, to out yourself. Uh, there's all these stupid ramifications. And that's why, you know, on our show, we always talk about decrim and how it's so important. Because once we have decriminalisation of sex work, for example, in Victoria, we can have an opportunity to uh, be treated like any other business, to be treated like any other, everyone else in society, so that we can go to authorities and say, look, we have a problem with online stalking, we have a problem with a client, we have a problem with violence, whatever, without the stigma of, oh, we might be arrested. Yeah. Of, oh, no, we have to reveal our, our legal name and add ourselves to our general community. Yeah, and I imagine it also sends a message to clients or potential clients about the kind of respect a sex worker deserves or the way the work should be treated. Um, if you're treating everything as wrong, then it's going to be really hard to have those protections in place. <sighs> exactly. It's just sex, people. Sex between consenting adults. Come on. <laughs> Um, now, it's sounding particularly grim, but are there any avenues for people to advocate for change in these laws? Or um... Yes, there are, there, are two, there are two ways. One is, one is um, we can write to our federal member of parliament to say, you know, this is unacceptable. Uh, this is why, because it, it really encroaches on our freedom of speech. It's not just about sex workers. It's the overall community. It's our freedom of speech as consenting adults to do what we like behind closed doors. Who cares? Seriously, who cares? It's sex. It might be fetish. It might be um, porn. But it's consenting adults. And that's what we're looking at. Consenting adults, freedom of speech. What's so hard to understand, really? The second thing is that one way around it is because the federal government is is uh, fast-tracking this, what we can do is look at, and this is happening at the moment, is look at uh, uh, pornography and the classification of pornography. So there is a review at the moment, a federal review of online pornography. So if we can get involved with that and uh, look at the different classifications and restructure some of those, I think we'll have a better... Um, uh, a better handling of the entire situation. So we're, we're keeping abreast on this situation and we'll be reporting on this over the next coming months as well. Um, and we're talking to more people in our industry, we're talking to more lawyers as well, because this is an ongoing issue that's that we have to win. Yeah. There's no ifs or buts. We have got to win this um, because we cannot allow a foster-sister situation to occur in Australia. Australia is a great country. We're supposed to be a lucky country. Well... It sounds like we're going down the down the toilet. Yeah. And absolutely. we cannot let this happen. That's why I love being on 3CR. <laughs> you know, shout out to 3CR. And everyone listening, you have to subscribe to 3CR. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Freedom of speech, everyone. <laughs> and um, we might take a short break there. So for those just tuning in, I'm speaking to Dean Lim from 3CR's Behind Closed Doors about the online safety bill and its likely impact on sex workers. And when we come back, I'm keen to ask Dean about Behind Closed Doors' upcoming performance at the Midsummer Festival. Woohoo!
Christmas trouble, 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 That was Paul Kelly with I Smell Trouble. Uh, You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm Ella and I'm joined in the studio this morning by Dean Lim from Behind Closed Doors. Um, So we've just been chatting about the online safety bill, um, which is currently working its way through Parliament at the moment. Um, And the issues particularly around how it's going to restrict sex work and porn performers. Um, Now, on a lighter note, I wanted to ask Dean about Let Me Get Something Off My Chest, a spoken word event coming up next Monday. Oh, gosh, I'm so nervous. (laughs) Okay, so 
One of the things that we're doing as part of Behind Closed Doors is doing more events and being what is called face out, which is being out in the public, <laughs> <laughs> having having a couple of speeches or events or getting our names and faces uh, in the press and in the media. And again, it's part of our role to destigmatize the sex industry and destigmatize who we are because it's just work and it's work between consenting adults. Who cares, everyone? It's S-E-X. <laughs> it's sex. <laughs> so what's happening is that the Midsummer um, Arts Festival is happening. It's been delayed because of coronavirus. Now it is uh, happening in full swing as of next week. Monday the 19th is the first day and Behind Closed Doors is appearing uh, as part of a, a spoken word event called, uh, called Let Me Get Something Off My Chest, presented by Sam Elkin. And Sam Elkin is a fantastic person, human being. Love you, Sam. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we actually had Sam on our show as well. He is a, um, a lawyer and he talked about being involved with the Roberta Perkins Project, which helps transgender uh, people. Uh, and give support to marginalised communities in society. As part of this event, on Monday the 19th, we, were, we are performing at the Bowery Theatre in St Albans, and we're a part of a, a group of people who will be um, given a chance to be on stage and talk about a few things. So we've got about, a ten, I think, a 10-minute slot where we're standing on stage and we're going to get something off our chest. Excellent. And when you say we, that's with your co-hosts Kitty and Sassy from Behind uh, Yes, Doors. Kitty Excellent. and Sasha, yes. And we're going to, uh, yeah. Have you can a, expect have a, a good rant. Oh, a little bit of a rant, I think. <laughs> love a rant. <laughs> I, I love a rant too, but a good rant. <laughs> no swearing because we understand that, um, yeah, we, we're, we're, a lot of uh, general members of the community will be there. So we're... we're Actually, I think we're pretty well behaved. <laughs> well, definitely this morning. I don't think there's been any F-bombs. <laughs> oh, great. I can swear. I say it now. <laughs> and do you get, ever get any performance anxiety? I imagine it's a little daunting. We don't see so many faces when we're in the 3CR studio. So to be out there in the oh, public must gosh. be a little... I've, I, I'm someone who is actually an introvert. So I don't like speaking in general. <laughs> I don't like being in the public eye let alone on stage, but I realise that uh, it's kind of like my duty. Yeah. And especially, you know, by being on 3CR and, and talking to so many people, it is vitally important to get our message to the world, to the broader communities. And our message is one of tolerance, of destigmatizing the sex industry and sex workers, uh, Letting people know that you know what we're not too we're not some two headed monster that's going to steal your husband or steal your girlfriend or <laughs> partner or whoever, we're just consenting adults who work. That's it. Yep. <laughs> and um, yeah, as we said earlier, um, behind closed doors is Australia's only sex work show. So if you don't do it, no one else is going to do the job. Exactly. At the moment. <laughs> Someone has got to do it, and we've we've got to have a we've got to start being the adult in the room, because the federal government's not doing it for us. And that's why I'm so glad um, of 3CR, who've been around since 1976, championing our voices. Because on this station, there are so many diverse voices, so many diverse people, communities, ideas, ideologies. Some of the things I may not understand or may I may not agree with, but we're having a conversation. Mm. We're existing. 
and you know we we are working and striving towards having a better society a better world what's wrong with that why can't friggin i'm not gonna say the f word friggin (laughs) (laughs) federal politicians do that come on yeah and we're always um, hearing the story from people with lived experience, which I think is a huge issue, especially um, various like sex work. It's so rare that you actually um, hear people with a lived experience telling us about sex work. It's usually someone talking about it who, yeah, has no first-hand experience. <laughs> exactly. And the, and the community is so diverse. It's great to have the opportunity to speak and to allow more people to speak. You know, the, the, we we literally like the colours of the rainbow. We are so diverse. So, you know, come on down, future sex workers. Come on, let's let's get on our show. <laughs> We're always open to talking to people, past, present and future. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Dean. I think we're running out of time, just looking at the clock. Um, so just quickly for listeners, how can they get along to this event on Monday? Just Google, let me get something off my chest, presented by Sam Elkin. Or you can even shoot us a little direct message on our Twitter, which is at BCD3CR. Excellent. We'll check it out. And for listeners wanting to hear a little more detail about the online safety bill, uh, Dean did a great interview earlier this year uh, with Kim Combs, a porn performer, and Jared Bartle, a legal expert, which I'd encourage everyone to check out. All right. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> and next up, we're going to be hearing from Doing Times, Marissa Basaro, who spoke to Tabitha Lean as part of 3CR's International Women's Day coverage. Tabitha spells out the dangers of carceral responses to harm and what criminalising coercive control could mean for Indigenous women experiencing family violence. The violence Aboriginal women suffer within the system, including community corrections via strip searching, over-surveillance, etc., and how recent calls by feminists to criminalise coercive control could in fact not provide protection, and note that, not provide protection to all as feminists suggest, rather place Aboriginal women more firmly within the realms of the criminal injustice system. Hello, Tabitha. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for having me on. It's lovely to have you. So just to put things in context, and could you just talk about what land you're from first? Sure. I'm a Gunditjmara woman, born and raised on Ghana Yurta, and I'm calling in today from Ghana country that I'm totally honoured to be standing on and I want to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, for their ongoing custodianship of country. It is really great to have you back, uh, Tabitha. You certainly kept me going during the lockdown. <laughs> yeah, but I'm glad that um, you know people are sort of up and out of their homes now. It's been tricky for people. Absolutely. So let's talk about what we were discussing off off air the other day and I was just saying, to just to set the scene, in regards to violence against women and, of course, we need to include institutional violence, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the, that's the thing at the moment. There's a lot of discussion about violence perpetrated against women's bodies in this country but very little attention is paid to the daily and ongoing violence perpetrated onto black women and children in the carceral system. And that speaks volumes about the disposability of human life behind bars, really. Absolutely. And so what can you just explain further what you mean when you, when you say that feminists suggest 
that um, there's protection for all as far as women are concerned who are incarcerated? Yeah, sure. I'll I, I'll just like contextualise it a little bit so people know that I'm sure. speaking from a position of um, understanding. I have lived prison experience, having spent two years in Adelaide's prison for deviant women and an accumulated two years on home detention and remain tethered to the system on parole or, as I call it, open-air prison. I've also... Um, been in violent relationships myself and so I think that I come to this discussion with a little bit of expertise in this area so I just wanted to ground it a little bit I'm certainly not an expert but I have some experience Um, so right now we have a range of feminists and feminist organisations calling for the criminalising of a form of violence called coercive control and whilst coercive control in my opinion is fundamentally damaging to the woman who is being controlled, the call by white feminists to um, criminalise this, in my view, by creating this new offence, it firmly places women squarely within the domain of criminal justice. And let's face it, there are always and often deadly consequences for Aboriginal women accessing the law, despite carceral feminists believing that the intention of this law is to protect us. It just fails to take into account what response women in violent relationships might want from a criminal justice system and what they might receive in reality. Because in my experience and the experience of many black women in this country, the more that criminal law tries to intervene on behalf of us, the more challenges it poses for us. That's Whether it's from contact with the police to having to front court to giving evidence in a trial, all of this creates hurdles and has the real potential to cause us harm. And added to that, how can we even trust the police with extended powers, which would actually rely on a high level of discretion, a keen eye to identify patent abuse, and basically a good theoretical and practical understanding of gender and family-based violence? As Aboriginal women, we can't rely on the police for that because our access to safety and justice is almost always irrevocably compromised by the police. So I just think that, What's being proposed at the moment, little thought has been given to alternatives to criminalisation. In this country and across the world, we rely on criminalising people and this criminal punishment system so much that we've internalised this pull to punishment. But I think we have to move towards imagining and creating a world that is free of exile and punishment because we know that what we're doing to people within the system is not producing contrite rehabilitated individuals, but releases us damaged and finding it really difficult to find our place back in the world. So, so even though that yeah. I've been a big, sorry, I've been a That's victim right. of this kind of violence, I just don't think that criminalising and, and putting people in jail helps the perpetrator, nor does it help the woman that might need to be, you know, phoning in for support or safety. You are certainly correct on that, and it, it's... In my view, as a as a radio broadcaster and also as an activist, it's important to provide help for the perpetrators as well. Absolutely, yeah. And look, I mean, I want to preface it by saying also that I'm I'm not saying that if someone's being coercively controlled, that they should not call the police. That's entirely, you know, their of right course. and and maybe the only access to safety that that person has. But my issue with what's being proposed by carceral feminists is that they they see that imprisonment is the primary solution to violence against women. 
But the reality is, you know, coercive control is a strategic form of ongoing oppression used to instill fear. And, like, we know that abusers use tactics like limiting access to money or monitoring communication, you know, all of these kind of controlling efforts. But the reality is I am currently being coercively controlled by the state under the parole system. And where are all of these carceral feminists fighting for my liberation? They're not. And this over-reliance on the criminal injustice system does not protect everyone. Not every woman in this country can call the police and be safely responded to. How would it be then if we could say, for example, that an Aboriginal woman or indeed uh, a migrant woman or any woman from an Mm. ethnic background, but we'll say Aboriginal women for the purposes of today because that's what today's show is about. But let's look at this scenario, Tabitha, and let me let me let me know what you think of this. So imagine if an Aboriginal woman um, is being beaten by her partner, then she goes to call the police, and the police in turn betray the Aboriginal woman and and have racism towards her as well. How does that sit with you? Because that could happen, couldn't it? It happens now. In fact, um, one of our aunties was killed in custody literally for that. They called the police because their partner had breached a a violence order. When the police arrived, they incarcerated her for having unpaid fines and then she was subsequently killed in custody. So these imaginings that people think that Aboriginal women have about the violence and lack of safety that the police provide to our community are founded in fact. This happens all the time to Aboriginal women. We call the police if we're if we are forced to because that's the only option we have right now. And then we are in turn criminalised. And that's exactly what the the criminalisation of coercive control could increase women's risk of being incarcerated. Because that is the reality we face. It's the reality that that we know that happens. And in Aboriginal communities, we try to... I mean, we've been doing abolition a long time. We do abolition in a way that we don't call the police on people, on our brothers, sisters or children, because we know that involving the police not only could result in that person being harmed, but us also. So to me, it just... It smacks of real privilege an unchecked privilege and arrogance to suggest that a black woman should trust the police in their most vulnerable moments. The same police agents of so-called law, order and safety who kill black men in their bedrooms. So when carceral feminists come out and they say that we should rely on policing, prosecution and imprisonment as a primary solution to violence against women, I think how can they ask me that when I know that the criminal justice system has deep racial flaws and it will not end violence in the home? But it will tear at the seams of my community because not only does the police not protect the perpetrator of harm they don't protect us as women either how can we create safer communities then without protecting the perpetrator yeah look i think i think we have to think to ourselves of like what is the current system doing the current system is not providing protection to either the person being violated or the perpetrator So I have to think, I think, how are we going to transform this? Are we trying to make it so people don't harm each other? Are we trying to make it so that one person is incapacitated indefinitely? Like, what is the goal of what we're doing? 
And I think the goal is that we don't want anybody harmed again and we don't want anyone else to be abused or violated. So then the job ahead of us is not to figure out how to incapacitate someone better, how to lock them up longer or harsher conditions. The job ahead of us is to figure out what are the conditions that lead to that person perpetrating harm. So I think it's about building a world based in mutual aid and radical reciprocity. It's about finding local community solutions and approaches which repair harm through accountability practices rather than punishment. That enables us to respond simultaneously to individual and systemic violence and we can transform communities and eradicate the structures that enable violence in its first place. I mean, fundamental to abolition is recalibrating our relationships with each other, with property, with state and with with land and country. So it's about coming together as a community and thinking about ways of managing these these things and changing these institutions which produce people at harm. Because the reality is we are not innately criminal people. We are not innately evil. Like harm and criminality comes from some other place. It's why, you know, people are always talking about even in sentencing in trials of all the, the things that that person has gone through that have led them to that point of offending. Like we can't separate people from that. And as members of community have to take some complicity in what is happening and the complicity in these systems and people who are harming. So I want us to love people beyond who we want them to be. I want us to focus on abundance and healing, not scarcity and harm. I want us to centre community and I want us to shape life rather than support systems that take life. And all of that sounds really Pollyanna, I know. People are always saying that to me, like, what do you mean, like, just love people beyond who we want them to be or just love people more? But the reality is if we did love everyone and if we cared enough about our neighbour, our fellow community members to know what's going on in their lives or know the things that they're experiencing that could lead them to perpetrate harm, then I think things could change. I think I think we could just be a much better and a happier sort of place than we are right now because at the moment all we do is we wait for people to harm and then we punish them. And what we do is yeah. we punish them and we we perpetrate harm onto them. There's no prevention. There's no there's no, no early intervention or prevention. No, and there's no care. There's no care. What we see is someone who harms and we want to exile them and punish them while they're there. And then when they come back into community, they're not accepted as full citizens. They're not accepted as rehabilitated citizens. They go back they and do it again. A life well, and they carry a lifetime of collateral consequences. I mean, myself as a criminalised woman, I've come back into community as a contributing member of this community. Sorry, Tabitha, I just want to interrupt citizen. there. When, when mm. I said meant that I met perpetrators go out and do it again, I didn't mean you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, okay. no, but sure. But, yeah. but the reality is I'm also a perpetrator of crime. You know, I'm, I, I have a criminal record. I have perpetrated an offence against society. Yeah. And this is the thing is that when we bring people back into communities, that they exist as these kind of quasi-citizens with quasi-rights and yes. even more so they have these collateral consequences. So it's just not working for us. And what we know about people who commit these kinds of offences, including sex offences, is that they are put in prison with other people who have the same offences. Mm-hmm. So all it does is strengthen their networks and their understandings of their criminality. It doesn't do anything to rehabilitate and support them to come out and heal and be contributing members of society. So I just, I think it's a really backwards way of working. And 
you know, Aboriginal people within the system, every time that they're brought into the criminal punishment system, they are at risk of being killed in custody. So to put a black man in prison for perpetrating violence, to me, all it does is tear at the seam of our community. The potential is that he will not come out alive. However, what we know is that Aboriginal people are not innately criminal. I mean, the delegates from the Uluru Statement from the Heart asserted that in their invitation to the Australian public. But what we know is that colonisation criminalises our people and it leads to this kind of offending. So I'd really like us to look at our society and our communities and the ongoing effects of colonisation and treat that rather than saying we will lock up anyone who coercively controls a woman. It's very true, Tabitha, what you're saying. And it would be fantastic if we we could apply all this. And, And I think really at the heart of this... I'd just like to comment on the fact that elders have had all their supports taken away and really Aboriginal law and work on cultural work on country has been severely destabilised mm. over hundreds of years. Yeah, absolutely. The ongoing dispossession of Aboriginal people from their country, I mean... Even the fact that I sit here today on Ghana country, I'm really cognizant of the fact that the fact that I sit here relies on the ongoing dispossession of Ghana people from their land. So I am an uninvited guest on this country too. Um, you know, I, I just think that we need to build communities which sustain life. Yeah. And at the moment, that's not what we're doing. We're not emboldening community and families. We're emboldening cops and courts. And I think that safety, whether that's individual, family or community safety, cannot come without freedom and justice because who we are and what we are comes from the alchemy of our struggles. And if we dismantle systems that cage and punish, we can explicitly fight genocide and dispossession. And that's what we need in this country and that's what Aboriginal people need. We need systems that encourage life and not take our lives. And... um, Every day that a black person is locked in a cage, whether they be a man, woman or child, it is taking from us and it's taking from our community. And we need to change that. We really do. And Tabitha, I'm just so happy that you came on. I've always enjoyed your company and I've really enjoyed our conversations over the last couple of years. And look, this has only just scratched the surface of a lot of the leadership work that you're doing um, and... Of course, we're going to be having you back regularly on the show when, when you can. But we're nearing the end of the show. Are there, any, are there any other final comments that you want to make about International Women's Day? I mean, do you think that Aboriginal women are included in International Women's Day? Oh, absolutely not. I think that International Women's Day has been a, become a celebration of white women. And um, I, I laughed because this morning on Twitter I'd put out that I'm, my birthday is actually on International Women's Day, so I feel like I'm the black queen that International Women's Day women didn't even know they had. What <laughs> did they want? Um, <laughs> but I, I think what we're seeing across the country is panels being convened of white women to discuss women's issues for International Women's Day, and we're seeing a deliberate silencing and erasure of black women's voices in this country. And... So I want to thank 3CR for elevating black women's voices and even more so to you, Marissa, for always elevating women with lived prison experiences' voices because we are marginalised in this country and continue to be erased and silenced by the structures that exist within it. So 
I find it an absolute. I find it an absolute offence for other people to speak up on pe- people's lived experience. It really, it it really gets to me, and so I always make it my my mission. In every show that I do, I'm very very conscious. If I have a topic, then I invite someone who's had lived experience, and of course. We do need lawyers, though, Tabitha. Sometimes mm. it's important to have lawyers onto the show to talk about, you know, topics as well to to support mm. them in, in in an ally setting. Absolutely, and I think I think that's the other thing I would say is that to people who are being invited onto panels or things like that, if they look around and they don't see an Aboriginal woman or a person with lived experience of the actual topic being discussed, then they need to question whether they're the right person to be there. Now, they might well be at that point, but in my view, we should always share our platforms with the people who are being oppressed by the topic that we're actually discussing, because we're all experts in our own oppression. Tabitha, thank you so much for coming onto the program. You are an absolute legend, and I don't, I don't think we have time for your poetry today, but next time. <laughs> thank you, Marissa, and thank you, 3CR. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Tabitha. Um, speaking about a range of topics, um, about her lived experience of domestic violence and other issues, tune in every day, every week, sorry, every day is too much, every week um, from four to five on a Monday for the Do and Time show. And I hope you enjoyed the special broadcast um, about Aboriginal women for International Women's Day. Stay safe. Uh, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. And next up, we're going to speak to Sam Cerner, a Venezuelan comedian who's been living in Australia for the last 10 years. And it's her solo debut at the Melbourne Comedy Festival uh, for her show, Bunny Rabbit. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for having me, Patty. No, you thank doing? you so much for waking up so early. Oh, no, it's fine. I, I work full time, so this is my hour to wake up anyway. Well, congratulations for uh, your first day, your, your debut solo show. Um, could you tell us how it's been going over the last week? Oh, uh, thank you for that. Um, it's been going great. Um, you know, for, for my debut show, um, numbers have been larger than expected, so that's always good. And the audience response has been also great. I'm really proud of what I've accomplished. To be quite honest, I think it's super impressive, especially considering you've only been sort of on the comedy circuit for about eighteen months. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So, do, can you tell us a little bit, like, how about that process of how you know? I guess also through COVID, like, how did you keep developing your skills, and how did you, uh, um, like, where did you start out, and how did you end up at the Melbourne Comedy Festival? Well, um, I did the Melbourne Fringe right after the lockdown. Lockdown was actually a really prolific period for me. I did a lot of comedy on Zoom, which allowed me to connect with comedians from all over the world. Um, I did a lot of writers' rooms on Zoom. So I didn't really waste my time, even though I couldn't perform in front of a live audience. I could perform on Zoom, which is actually a great tool to help you with your pacing because um, I, I would say at least 25% of the skills that you need to have for stand-up is pacing and waiting for the last. And Zoom comedy really helped me with that. Um, so, yeah, I did start maybe eight months before the lockdown. I was doing a lot of open mics a week. So 
it, it's been a, a fast um, track, but it's because I've been working on it so much. It's it's really impressive, and I've seen some of your comedy uh, online. I like your sort of theatrical style and the way the, uh, the way the way you come on stage, and your your eyes are um, so f- sort of full of you know sort of uh, a playfulness. Um, oh, thank you. How do you how do you so this, your, your show Bunny Rabbit has been described as a mixture of sex, pop culture, and politics, and the experience of dating after thirteen years of marriage. <laughs> uh, what prompted you to explore this through comedy, and why now? Well, um, Bunny Rabbit actually is a, the motif of the show, and it comes from uh, one of the first times I went out after separation. Um, you know, being married 13 years, I had never gone on a date without a chaperone, basically. Uh, so here I was in a foreign country uh, dating for the first time as a grown-up. And what I decided to do, because Tinder was a bit too much for me, um, was that I dressed up very sexy. And then I showed up to the pub because I wanted to do this the old-fashioned way. And when I realized that there were 10 dudes looking at me like I was a steak, I felt like a bunny rabbit. (laughs) And that is the motif of the show. Because then I also talk about my experience growing up in Venezuela in Caracas, one of the most dangerous cities in the world, in which all of us feel like bunny rabbits most of the time. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I, I imagine so societal expectations of women are probably different Definitely. between Venezuela and Australia. Um, could you could you sort of uh, dip into that a little for us? Definitely, there's um, there is a, a, a huge chunk about it on the show. Um, Venezuela is not only one of the most dangerous countries in the world. It's also, uh, we have seven Miss Universe titles. We are second only to the U.S. And, well, the U.S. owns a pageant, so I'm just saying <laughs> that we're first. <laughs> but, yes, it is a very shallow um, society, and that definitely made me a shallow person. And through these 10 years in Australia, it's been a process of detox from those expectations of, mm. you know, the first time I told my mother that I didn't wear makeup to the office, she said, oh, but you still shower, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Venezuela, makeup equals hygiene. <laughs> it's that basic. <laughs> so there is a lot of it on the show. Um, but yeah, it, I love that in, in here, you know, you don't have to dress a certain way and people will not take a second look because of that. That's interesting. Have Have you had any experiences in Australia of assumptions being made about you uh, based on your accent or your appearance? Oh yeah. Um, it's uh, recently I was in a plane and I couldn't do anything because I didn't want to have an argument in a plane and not being <laughs> able to leave. But this, she was a really sweet old man. We were traveling to the same place, uh, and you know, she started asking me about what my plan was. And I told him, well, I'm, I'm meeting a friend from uni. We haven't seen each other since I left, blah, blah, blah. And he asked me, oh, so what do you guys study? And I said, engineering. And he said, ah, and did you graduate? <laughs> and, I, and I didn't know what to say in the moment. Like, why are you asking me this? That's not a, an okay question for anyone. Uh, but yes, that, that's one of the small incidents that I can remember now. Uh, yeah, some people 
because I am a fair-skinned Latino. Um, I was on a job interview once, and the lady asked me, are your looks typically Venezuelan? And that is that is a misconception. You know, I have this <laughs> joke that uh, Latinos are an exotic minority in Australia, so people don't take me to go back home where I came from because they don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, lots of people, you know, don't think Latina. They think Latina, and they think Jennifer Lopez, Olive King. I am really, really pale. So, yeah, and all of that is part of the show because my material comes from my experience. Um, some comics, they just do observational, and they just want to have a joke or puns or whatever. That's not me. My comedy, my material comes from my experience and my vision. Mm. And I want to go back to... Uh that idea of the bunny rabbit, you know, the motif of your show um, and sort of link that um, to growing up in Venezuela. Can you tell us about what's going on in Venezuela at the moment and and why did you decide to leave Venezuela uh, 10 years ago? Well, um, 10 years ago, it was not that common to leave, but it was not rare. Uh, Venezuela is in, in dictatorship. There's no democracy um, there is the financial crisis. There is happening. It is really rough. I, I I consider myself super privileged that I was able to take my mom and dad out um, about two years ago, because definitely being here and knowing that they were not safe, it is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Um, I consider myself lucky that I could get all my family out, thanks to the fact that I came to Australia on a skilled migration, and was able to have a professional career that allowed me to have that financial backup to get my family out. Uh, but, yeah, it's definitely... I still have friends there. One of the characteristics of Venezuela and Latin America in general is that there is no upward mobility. Uh, people who are poor in in... They, they don't have a chance to make it up. Venezuela is a bit different in that sense because in the past we were super, um, we were a booming economy. My mom and dad grew up poor and were able to get to middle class through the effort of their work. Uh, this is not possible now. So the experience I have is so different to the one of the 80% poor people in my country. There is 80% of poverty. So uh, I still have friends there and they... You know, we come from, from a privileged background, so to speak, even though it doesn't really compare to being privileged in the first world. Uh, but yes, it is a very complex situation. Six million people have left. Uh, it's the biggest refugee situation in the Americas. Uh, 20% of the country has left. So it is a complex situation. And that's part of the reason I, I have to joke about it, because there is a way of... Um, Catharsis. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it's almost like therapy. And I also feel like um, by letting people outside the world, outside my country know through humor, it is the best way I can somehow contribute to not let this happen again anywhere else in the world. I, I do think this could have been stopped uh, one way or another. I, I, I know this is early in the morning, but I lost all hope for my country. Um, but I think it's really a defense mechanism. You ask any Venezuelan, what would you do if the dictatorship ended tomorrow? They all say, 
I would try for three days and then I would get drunk for a month. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if I disappear for a month, it's because the dictatorship ended. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when you um, sort of talk about Venezuela in Australia, does any of it get lost in translation? Can you know? Is it easy to make people laugh about these things, or is it uh, you know? Do yeah. people not know what you're talking about? Well, that's the thing. Like, if I if I had a five minute spot, like when you get on any any sort of show. It's, it's not enough time. You know, it takes me about 20 minutes to go into the history of it. But, yes, people laugh and people understand. And they come to me after the show and say, I didn't know it was that bad. I'm glad you're here. Uh, you know, that, because that's the thing. I do think humor is a primer to open your mind and to let um, ideas in. So that's why I have to joke about women's issues, about Venezuelan issues, and all that jazz, yeah. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show this morning, Sam. Would you be able to give out the details of your uh, show so that people know how to get tickets? Definitely. There are three shows left. Uh, they are at the Belgian Beer Café in Southbank. It's it's 7 p.m. on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And... Uh, the easiest way to get tickets would be to go into the festival site and looking for some sort of bunny rabbit. Because <laughs> it is really difficult to give out a URL on radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much, Sam. And uh, I urge everyone to um, go down and support uh, what you know an up-and-coming comedian. Thank you so much for having me, buddy. All right. And that was Sam Cerner, who's performing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Now, before we head off today, I'm just going to plug a couple of events on. Um, so tonight at 6.30 at Cinema Nova, um, there's an advanced screening of the documentary The Dissident. Uh, so this is the story of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018 and the subsequent global cover-up. Uh, so the film starts at 6.30 and will be followed by a panel discussion with Melbourne journalists, including our 3CR chairman, Pilar Aguilera. Um, so to get along to that or get more information or purchase tickets, head to cinemanova.com.au. Um, it'll be good to hear some more about that because it was a pretty shocking story mm. that, yeah, we didn't get a lot of information about or sort of came out in directs and I think there's still a lot of secrecy surrounding it. Yeah, I've seen the trailer for that uh, documentary. It looks really, really interesting. And um, following on from the recent National Day of Action to Stop Black Deaths in Custody, if you want to sign the petition, the families of those who are murdered at the state's of, hands of the state, sorry, um, you can go to www.natsills.org.au slash BLM. And I think that's our show for this morning. Um, so a big thank you to all our guests. It was a real treat having someone in live in the studio today. Um, we'll be back with you next Wednesday. 